Welcome to UCLA Extension's Business Insights with Roger Ternaden, where we highlight hot topics and underlying economic trends useful to you. Our regular listeners may recall our prior podcasts going back into 2020 and even a bit before then gave early warnings about some inevitable outcomes of our national debt and Federal Reserve money creation at levels that seemed unimaginable only a year or so ago. These debt and money creation behaviors continue climbing month to month, adding more risks in our financial markets, and these risks are now beginning to have serious consequences. I invite you again to listen to past podcasts still available, as we have confidence in providing you with key learning experiences that will help you with career, investment, and lifestyle plans. Today, the game plan is to summarize where we are and what we can expect coming up next in major credit, monetary, interest rate, and inflation prospects. So fasten your seatbelt. Early last year, the 10-year Treasury note had a price of almost exactly 140 And this week, the same note is priced in the marketplace at approximately 132 What does this mean? Anyone who bought or invested in this government debt obligation at 140 would have lost approximately 6% of their investment while earning only about one-half of 1% interest income during the year. I bring this up to illustrate how long-term notes and bonds are not conservative investments today. They are mighty risky. Also, recall that the 10-year Treasury note is key to influencing all long-term rates as well as your borrowing rates for home mortgages. In summary, as the 1.5% yield on this note moved up to about 1.5% over the past year, the prices you would pay or you would get on the sale of this investment dropped almost 6%. To make it more real, your brokerage or bank statement during this period would show this part of your investment portfolio lost 6%. For anyone who owns long-term bond funds, the losses are likely even more during this period. Be careful investing your hard-earned dollars in long-term bonds at a time when interest rates are moving up from their all-time historical lows. For the past 20 to 30 years, long-term interest rates dropped and bond prices climbed higher year by year. Think of a seesaw or a teeter-totter. When one end is going down, the other end is going up, up to a point. Then the ends of the seesaw reverse direction and sometimes at even a faster rate. Heavier weight added to the end of the top can make it drop so hard and fast the whole board may break. You get the idea. Think of the bond market as beginning to drop with the possibility it can drop really fast this year. What's causing this drop? Again, please review past podcasts for details, but here's the summary. First of all, historically high inflation in pretty much all the financial assets, bonds, stocks, and real estate. Have we reached a turning point in the drivers of these uptrends? I'll give you a hint. The drivers are the exponential debt creation and money creation. 
Additionally, the major buyers of financial assets are pension funds, mutual funds, social security, and foreign sovereign wealth funds, among a few others. The big buyers I just named have pretty much bought already and have low or no cash balances left to invest. China has cash, but has not been a net buyer of U.S. Treasury debt for over two years for other reasons. Social Security is no longer a new buyer, as they are paying out more in benefits than they are taking in in contributions, plus the fact that unemployment continues really high, which means lower inflows of Social Security contributions by employees and employers. It's good to recall that all markets have cycles, and some of what I just mentioned is what makes up the direction changes in cycles. These are serious lessons in avoiding known risks, so I really hope they get noticed by many wage earners who are investing for ultimate retirement and lifestyle maintenance. I'll argue that today, this week, next month, and going forward, we are facing risks higher than in past recessions and depressions. Why is that? During previous periods in financial history, the focus was primarily on the deflation of a singular market bubble. Stocks, bonds, real estate, and speculative investments have all experienced historic inflation in this particular upcycle. Throughout history, an unexpected surge in interest rates has repeatedly led to a change in direction and poor investor outcomes for the future. The Fed's suppression of rates to bail out the bond market in the short term has created a long-term problem of mispricing risk. Given economic growth remaining elusive over the last decade, it is unlikely doubling the Fed's balance sheet will improve future growth outcomes. The real threat is not just the stock market bubble's puncture, but rather blowing up the, quote, everything bubble. During previous periods of financial history, the focus was primarily on the deflation or puncturing a single market bubble. You can go back all the way 500 years almost, if you like. The tulip bubble many of us have read about in the 1600s, it was tulip bulbs. The South Sea bubble in the 1700s was trade and real estate. And I'll let you fill in on the asset bubbles that relate to commerce back then. The railroad bubble in the 1840s, the commodity bubble in the 1970s, 1973 particularly, commodities. Long-Term Credit Corporation, 1997, was a bubble, and that particular bubble was punctured by the devaluation of the Russian ruble and the deflation of Russian bonds, for starters. The dot-com bubble, technology stocks in 2000, 2001, the real estate bubble, 2007, 8, and 9. And now we have a bubble, I think everyone would agree, is a bubble with SPACs and Bitcoin. But today, the bubble is far more than SPACs and Bitcoin. All bubbles in the past revolved around speculation and something. Sometimes commodities, sometimes real estate, sometimes foreign bonds, sometimes railroads and agricultural land, foreign exchange, derivatives, art collectibles, IPOs. We could list 20 or 30 bubbles in the past, but they revolved around something. The byproduct today of cheap debt and liquidity is the explosion of household net worth and particularly as a percentage of disposable personal income. 
we have an asset bubble that makes it look as though households are at all-time highs in net worth. And we can go back starting the 1980s with President Reagan deregulating the banking system. From then on, net worth exploded through massive increases in debt. And that was made possible by nearly four decades of continually falling interest rates and inflation. In the free class that I teach and that you may enroll in, we're beginning again next month, I'm going to produce some of the overheads so you can actually see the trends. For now, I'll try to summarize them, obviously verbally. Household net worth as a percent of disposable income has gone up very substantially, and it's pretty much totally related to debt and price bubbles. You can see cycles. For example, if we go into the recent years, the dot-com bubble had the debt as a percent of disposable income of about six times. When the dot-com bubble burst occurred, the debt dropped way down since that time in 2007-2008, The real estate bubble brought the debt as a percent to disposable personal income, passing the six times, going up to almost seven times. And then once again, there was a substantial drop that brought it back to the 1990 levels, a new expansion of debt with monetization, money creation, new federal debt creation occurred. And today we ran up to about seven and a half times. That's a result of the stocks, bonds, and real estate bubble. It's important to keep in mind that debt continued to go up, but the prices of the assets that were supported by debt went up faster. So those who undertook to borrow more and more and more with the prices going up, if you really think about 2006, 2007, 2008, this is a good example where you can actually see it. The house became like an ATM machine or a piggy bank, and many invested in second houses, borrowing on the equity of the first house, taking on a new mortgage on the second house. And as real estate prices went up during the early 2000s, more and more of this occurred with no one thinking about the prices reversing, but it all looked very easy. So why would you put money in a savings account if you could make 5, 10, 15% in a year and even the next year on a real estate investment? Never mind you've borrowed substantially more money to be able to do that, but the game continued until it stopped. Another view we could do is look at the expansion of the net worth of families across the United States versus the growth in gross domestic product across the country. And that deviation, again, is at record levels. Real household net worth is 50% higher than it was during the financial crisis, 2007-2008. Well, economic growth didn't support that. It was really debt. Again, borrowing more and having the asset go up a little bit more than the borrowed money would cost. So it looks really great. Leverage is really great during an up market. And this applies to corporations also. A corporation borrowing money and increasing the amount of debt in their capitalization looks really good as long as business continues to go up or the stock prices continue to go up. But that trend always changes, always does. This time we have a new issue. It's not brand new, but relatively new, and it underlies a lot of the leverage. 
while across the United States it appears Americans are more wealthy because of what I just mentioned, in reality it's only a small fraction of the population that has benefited. And those who are in the top percentile of net worth across the United States have increased their net worth by a factor of two and a half times or so in the past 20 years. However, those in the lower income categories below that top 10%, it's barely moved, and some of them have gone down. Those having a net worth of less than $20,000 have less of a net worth than they did 20 years ago. And those who have net worths between 20 and 40,000, those between 40 and 60,000, those between 60 and $80,000 have shown no gains. Those who are in the percentile just below the 90 percentile have shown some gains over the past 20 years. So the vast majority of American families, the vast majority of American wage earners have not participated in this increase in net worth that I was talking about. If we move back to the stock bubble, there is little argument that financial markets are currently in a bubble. The market our monthly market chart of the Standard & Poor's 500 shows deviations from long-term monthly means or averages not seen since 1990. By any measure, we are at the top end of deviations from any medium-term or long-term trend in the markets on the very high end. And I would put up a reminder that when the stock market does correct, it takes many years to get back to where it was before it corrected. If we go back to, I'll cover three or four of these. In the Great Depression, if we go back to 1929, the big stock market boom and sell-off, it took 15 years to get back to those levels. If we go back into the 1970s, which for better or worse, I'm old enough to remember, from the peak in the 1970s, it took 12 years to get back even. In the dot-com bust, it took 13 years. It's a long time when the stock market substantially corrects. And in my view, we are long overdue, and we can expect that at any time. I don't say that sell-offs that we've had in the past week are the beginning of it. I really don't know. No one knows. But when it does occur, it can be very rapid, and it can take many years to make up the drop. That's a fact. During a market mania, which we've seen a number of, investors continue to rationalize overpaying for assets, and that keeps prices moving higher. Over the last decade, the most common justification is that low interest rates justify high valuations of assets. The problem comes in when interest rates rise. Throughout history, an unexpected surge in interest rates has repeatedly led to poor investor outcomes. Whether or not we are seeing that real-time remains to be seen. But in the past eight months or so, the 10-year Treasury note, which I, I mentioned earlier, interest rates have almost gone up a full percentage point, from approximately a half a percent a year to approximately 1.5%. And the yields of the other maturities have gone up in a similar way. I'm not smart enough to call the turning point, but I am alert enough to know that when that turning point comes and interest rates do continue to increase, that that will have a very substantial negative impact on the asset groups that have been appreciating over the past 10, 20, 30 years. Despite media rhetoric that rising rates aren't a problem for the stock market, history suggests they are a serious problem for the stock market. 
Given the massive surge I just mentioned in corporate leverage and family leverage, borrowing, promulgated by weak economic growth, higher rates will quickly impact corporate profitability and financing activities. If we quickly summarize real estate, there is a bubble once again in real estate. In housing, as a continuous suppression of borrowing costs, loose lending policies, not as loose perhaps as the 07-08 Great Recession predecessors, but loose lending policies and a flood of stimulus has led to a historical surge in home prices. Home price appreciation has once again eclipsed long-term price trends. The current overvaluation in homes, of course, is driven by record low mortgage rates. Given that economic support will quickly reverse as interest rates rise, and given there is a surging demand for homes, just as with the stock market when rates rise, there will be a rush to sell to a diminishing pool of buyers. Just a matter of when is that turning point. And it's certainly closer than it's ever been in the past 20 years or longer. It's worth noting, again, as with the stock market, which essentially is owned by the top 20% of income earners, most houses were bought by that same fraction of the population. In other words, the buyers have been those with higher incomes and nearly perfect credit. The bond bubble, there is nowhere that I can think where there's more at risk from higher interest rates than the bond market itself. Given that yield is a function of price, there is a perfectly negative correlation between prices and interest rates. How did this happen? Well, one reason is the Fed returned to the financial crisis playbook to anticipate events that may occur in the credit markets, and that's rather than responding to outcomes. In other words, anticipating the issues and protecting against the issues actually emerging. However, this time there's a difference. The financial crisis of 07, 08, 09 was a problem with the banking system. The COVID-19 pandemic, it's not a financial crisis or a banking crisis, it's a health crisis. And the Federal Reserve have now pushed yield spreads across the entirety of the credit spectrum to record lows. The Fed's suppression of rates to bail out the bond market in the short term has created long-term problems of mispricing risk. And this mispricing of risk, or rather the creation of moral hazard in the credit markets, have created a number of zombie companies in the process. Eventually, when rates rise enough, these zombie companies will be unable to refinance debt for their continued survival. Once bankruptcies begin to spike uncontrollably, investors will demand to get paid for their investment risk. And in the past, when this has occurred, the outcomes have been relatively dismal for stock prices and company valuations. As they found out back in March, the Fed can only buy a small fraction of corporate bonds without disrupting the market. And the risk now is a surge in rates and defaults. And this risk, in my view, is greater and the negative impact can be faster than the Federal Reserve can absorb, particularly since they've increased their balance sheet by almost 10 times in the past 10 plus years. They can't keep doing that, I would suggest. What should be clear is that if the rise in interest rates approaches 2%, and I'm talking about the 10-year Treasury note, or higher, there are many problems embedded in our economy due to it being laden with nearly $85 trillion 
dollars in debt. And this debt problem exposes the Fed's most significant risk. Given economic growth remained close to zero over the past decade, or let's say it remained really historically low, it is unlikely doubling the Fed's balance sheet will improve the future outcome. The failure to recognize the impact of ongoing monetary policies, given a decade of experience with surging debt and deficits that have inhibited organic growth, is problematic. In summary, the U.S. economy is literally on perpetual life support. Recent events show too clearly that unless physical and monetary stimulus continue, the economy will fail and by extension the stock market will drop. However, the Fed currently has no choice. Such is the consequence and the problem of getting caught into what uh, John Maynard Keynes defined as a liquidity trap. In other words, more and more money is available at lower and lower interest rate costs, but people are not at all convinced that they can redeploy that money for a positive return. Even though money is almost free, borrowing the money carries with its obligation to pay it back, and with the economy not growing at a healthy rate, there's concern about that likely ability to pay back in the future. If you look up liquidity crisis or John Maynard Keynes, there's a reservoir of information on the subject. What the average person fails to understand is that the next financial crisis will not just be a stock market drop or a housing bust or a collapse in bond prices. It could be the simultaneous implosion of all three. Whatever causes that change in sentiment is unknown. No one can know that. I'm not saying with certainty it will happen, as I hope sanity prevails and actions are taken to mitigate the consequences. Unfortunately, our long-term history suggests that's unlikely to be the case. With that, I wish you the best of good health, the best of success, and be cautious. Thank you. Be sure to email us at rtornadin at uclaextension.edu on more specific questions, which we will answer either personally or select as part of our future podcast. Hosted by Business and Legal Programs Director Roger Tornadin, this podcast is presented by UCLA Extension and produced by Jamie Moss at Studio 10960. These podcasts are made for educational purposes and are not financial advice. The goal is to educate and provide resources on focused economic and job trends with the latest support research so that you can make more informed financial and career decisions that best suit your personal needs. UCLA Extension offers more than 5,000 online and in-classroom courses taught by over 2,000 leading practitioners to help you get from here to there. For more information on this podcast or our financial and legal programs, please check us out at www.uclaextension.edu. We know it's about your life, not just your money.